Our gospel lesson for today is taken from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. But the message is so important. I'm actually only going to focus on the first two sentences of this passage. I invite you to read the entire chapter of um, Matthew chapter 18 this afternoon as part of your spiritual discipline. How often do we not spend time in the Bible, either because we just didn't learn how to read it effectively or because of some of the passages that have been inappropriately interpreted, and then it kind of turns us off to the whole thing. But there are some fantastic pearls of spiritual wisdom in our scriptures, and today is one of them in just two verses. And Jesus was teaching us this. Matthew writes, Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to Peter, Not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Here ends the reading. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. This morning, I'm going to tell one of my um, husband's favorite jokes. He told me that uh, he hasn't heard it in quite some time, and he wanted to hear again about old Joe. So... He does a lot of things around here, and I decided, yes, if this is his favorite, he hasn't heard it in a while, I will will share the story again. But I think what's most important is not that the story is so funny, it's that it hits a nerve, it sounds familiar, and it leads us right into one of the very hardest messages of our faith. So old Joe was very ill, and the news from his doctor was not good. For years, Joe had been at odds with his former best friend, Bill. And wanting to straighten things out before getting to the pearly gates of heaven, old Joe sent word for Bill to come and see him before it was too late. When Bill arrived, old Joe told him that he was afraid to go into eternity with such bad feelings between them. So then... Very reluctantly and with great effort, old Joe apologized for the things that he had said and done. Old Joe also assured Bill that he forgave Bill for his offenses against Joe. Everything seemed fine, very poignant, very touching. Everything seemed fine between the two men until Bill turned to go. As Bill walked out of the room... Old Joe called out after him and said, Now, Bill, just remember, if I get better, this apology doesn't count. Ever heard that before? If I get better, this apology doesn't count. It sounds familiar, right? Even though we know, in our hearts we know, we are supposed to forgive our trespassers, our sinners, our debtors, whichever form of the Lord's Prayer that you use, as we have been forgiven our trespasses or sins or debts, the bottom line is that it is not easy to forgive. Can I get an amen online? It is not easy to forgive. 
We human beings tend to hold on to our bitterness and anger. We stay stuck, and we don't know how to move out of our pain into reconciliation, as Jesus teaches us that we are supposed to do. For most of us, this is really not on purpose. We just don't know how to move past the pain and the hurt. Sometimes when we say, I don't want to forgive, what we really mean is, I don't know how to forgive. We don't know how to move past the hurt and the anger at being harmed. Or when we say, I don't want to forgive, we mean that we don't want to forget the harm. And we don't want to be harmed again by bad behavior that hasn't been adequately addressed. So even Jesus' disciples had a hard time with forgiveness. In today's gospel lesson, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells his disciples that they must forgive others, not just one time, but 77 times, which was Jesus' way of saying that there is no limit to forgiveness. That's a hard lesson. There is no limit to forgiveness. In these Bible passages, Jesus is teaching that forgiveness is not some favor that we bestow seven times and withhold the eighth time. Think about that. Because Peter was saying, if I do it seven times, do I not have to do it time number eight? That's a key part of this lesson. Jesus is teaching that forgiveness is not some favor that we bestow seven times and withhold the eighth. Forgiveness is a way of life that never ends. The problem is that forgiving someone once is strenuous enough. And forgiveness, true, psychologically healthy forgiveness, is one of the hardest things on earth to do. Can I get an amen and get some affirmation online for that statement? And yet Jesus tells us that to follow him, unlimited forgiveness and bountiful reconciliation is a way of life. It is the Christian way of life. Jesus teaches in the Gospels that forgiveness is not only possible, it is essential and it is commanded by God. Forgiveness from your heart, he says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 35, at the end of today's reading. Forgiveness from your heart, he said, is required by God. These are very hard teachings, and I can only touch on this for a moment today, really. And I recommend to you theologians like Walter Brueggemann and Rene Girard and Debbie Thomas, who's done some great writing and whose language I really appreciated around this. Because today's Old Testament or Hebrew Bible and New Testament readings are both about the social ethic of forgiveness. In our Old Testament reading, Joseph, after suffering abandonment, false accusation, and years of imprisonment, he forgives his brothers for sending him into a lifetime of hardship. At a different point of the reading that Hank was sharing today, Joseph says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, brothers, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. These readings, both Old and New Testament today, reveal what I call the paradox of forgiveness. Because true forgiveness is deeply paradoxical, and deeply difficult. That is because true forgiveness requires telling the truth, the whole unvarnished truth. And therein lies the paradox, because the truth hurts at the moment it heals us. Did you know that? 
that the truth hurts at the moment it heals us. Scholar Carlisle Marnie used to say, yes, the truth shall set you free, but the truth makes you flinch before it sets you free. He said it very scholarly-like. I like how Gloria Steinem said it. The truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. I like that version better. That rings true for me. The truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Today, we wonder how to even talk about forgiveness when so many of us are struggling to forgive deep hurts from our individual pasts, hurts inflicted by our families of origin, for example, or by our misogynistic and racist social structures and churches, by our homo-antagonist churches. Thank you, Hank and Dr. Bridgman, for helping me move past my use of the word homophobia. They said, no, you should be calling them homo-antagonist churches because it's not that they're scared of people, they're just mean, said Dr. Bridgman in a public quote, the dean of the seminary that Hank is attending and where I also received my degree. I thought, boy, that's bold to call churches homo-antagonist instead of just homophobic. I like that. We also struggle to forgive when there's been great harm caused by fear and violence-based theology. So many of you coming to St. John's are trying to wrap your heads around a more loving God and a more progressive theology because you were taught hellfire and brimstone, which actually was not correct. It's toxic theology and it kills. We also struggle to talk collectively about forgiveness when the collective harm has become so great. And let me bring this home to our current setting. If you don't get Time Magazine, I know there are a lot of good publications out right now, but if you don't get Time Magazine, I encourage you to get it. They're doing great reporting and deep articles. If you want to move beyond doom scrolling on your phone, it's called doom scrolling. You get those little snippets or you're just hearing uh, the the music and all the the collective harm every night on the news. If you want to move deeper and read some great articles that have been well-researched by some of the top journalists in the country, get Time Magazine. Their current issue says just on the cover, 200,000, an American failure. So let that sink in for a minute. 200,000 deaths projected this month because of COVID-19. Here's what they said in the editorial, the editor-in-chief. Now, we have to remember that that when we talk about 200,000 deaths, you have a country like Taiwan that has more than 23 million people in Taiwan, and they have seen only 495 cases of covid and seven deaths. Think about that. So it is possible because they shut down, they masked up, they cared for each other. It's one of the most successful responses in the world to COVID-19. It is possible. In contrast, we are projected very quickly to reach the $200,000 marker and it's equivalent to U.S. deaths in more than three Vietnams. So think about that. So we now are going to have more deaths from COVID than three times the number of deaths in Vietnam. We are losing every few days the equivalent number of people that we lost on 9-11. Remember, we just commemorated 9-11. And we forget that every week we're losing twice that due to COVID. We're becoming numb to that kind of pain. You know, we are 
losing the entire population of Salt Lake City by the end of this month to COVID. We right now have the largest by far in the world cases of COVID and more deaths per capita than almost every country. We now have something like six and a half million cases and we know we're undercounted, right? Even in the sanctuary at home, how many of you have actually been tested? Right? We know that we've been undercounted. Our healthcare workers have been tested. Our college students are getting tested. But how many people have not been tested? We know that we're woefully under-tested. We also know that right now that um, there are ripple effects to this pandemic that we can't even comprehend. A recent study out this last week or two said that 63% of parents said they have lost emotional support during the pandemic their friends, their family, the people they considered their emotional support. 63% of parents said they had lost their emotional support during the pandemic. At the time, they're also being asked to educate their kids. And we know that teachers are stressed and everything's gone remote. And those of us who have had to transition to remote work know that it's 10 times as much work sometimes to do something remotely. So... Um, I just share that with you to let the enormity of that sink in. Tremendous collective harm. This crisis has become chronic. It's a collective trauma. And we have to figure out as a country, how do we forgive and move forward? How do we hold to account and move forward? The reason I mention this, and this is why forgiveness is so darn hard. How many of you have seen um, Mary Trump's book? Too much or never enough, how my family created the world's most dangerous man. Raise your hand online here in the sanctuary, a few. She's a psychologist. And in this book, we learn more about the irreversible psychological harm Trump suffered as a child. A narcissistic injury, the psychologist would say. A narcissistic injury that goes a long way towards explaining why everything really is about him and why he is psychologically unfit for office during a national crisis. I just even took the back of the book cover. I just want to read this to you. If you haven't heard about this book or or read it or don't have time to read it. And um, she writes, Today, Donald is much as he was as three years old, incapable of growing, learning, or evolving, unable to regulate his emotions, moderate his responses, or take in and synthesize information. Child abuse, she writes, is in some sense a matter of too much or not enough. Donald's mother became ill when he was two and a half, suddenly depriving him of his main source of comfort and human contact. Our psychologists will tell you about what happens to kids if they lose their kind of whatever the maternal role is, their source of comfort and support in those formative years. You've heard of failure to thrive. You know, babies who will die if they don't have some sort of love and support, even if they have enough nutrition. She goes on and said that Donald's father, Fred, became his only available parent, but love meant nothing to Fred. He expected obedience. That was all. So if you think about that, how many of you have been familiar with parents? It didn't matter. The unconditional love may, may or may not have been there, but, um, but they expected obedience, and that can also harm a child. Over time, Donald became afraid that asking for comfort or attention would provoke his father's anger or indifference when Donald was most vulnerable. I mean, if you can imagine Donald Trump when he was two. That's hard, right? 
but if you think about a two-year-old and this harm, that Fred would become the primary source of Donald's solace when he was much more likely to be a source of fear or rejection, put Donald into an intolerable position when he was two years old. Total dependence on a caregiver who also caused him terror. Donald suffered deprivations that would scar him for life. I didn't know if you knew that. Now, fast forward 70-some years, and we have another book that came out, at least excerpts this week. My, my copy's not arriving until September 15th, but Bob Woodward's book, Rage. How many of you raise your hand in the sanctuary or tell us online have pre-ordered that book by Bob Woodward called Rage? I have an affinity for Bob Woodward, all the president's men, the Watergate scandal. I remember Watergate. I was just a, a small kid. But I remember Watergate, and it is interesting to me that one of the same men that broke the Watergate scandal is also breaking what may be the biggest scandal so far in the COVID crisis, which is that his interviews with Trump show beyond a doubt that Trump lied to the American people about the severity of COVID-19 and how it was transmitted in the early spring. And now 200,000 Americans are dead and dying and more will suffer. That's outrageous. It reminds me of the concluding quote in John Barry's book about the 1918 pandemic. You don't manage the truth. You tell the truth, period. That was the lesson of the 1918 pandemic. So going back to Gloria Steinem, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Anybody starting to feel uncomfortable? You're starting to see the cognitive dissonance and the paradox in forgiveness. True forgiveness requires truth-telling as we continue to explore the social ethic of forgiveness in today's message, whether on an individual or a collective basis. But in either situation, you may not know that forgiveness is a life skill. Did you know that? Let us know online. Did you know that forgiveness is a life skill? It's a life skill that can be learned, a life skill that can free you to live the rest of your life untethered by your past, free to speak your truth and to live your future. And here is one modern way to think about forgiveness from Oprah, who has become kind of a resonant theologian on Super Soul Sunday. So take a listen. You can also get this on YouTube later this afternoon if you're having any trouble hearing or seeing this. But listen carefully. Forgiveness is giving up the hope that the past could be any different. I think for myself, and I know many of you, you think forgiving means accepting what has happened to you. Well, it is accepting that it has happened to you. Not accepting that it was okay for it to happen. It is accepting that it has happened and now what do I do about it? Forgiving is giving up the hope, not holding on, hoping, wishing that it could have been any other way than it actually was. Giving up the hope that the past could be any different. I don't hold grudges for anything or any situation and neither should you. It's letting go so that the past does not hold you prisoner does not hold you hostage. But Oprah defines forgiveness in this way. It's giving up the hope that the past could be any different. 
So think about that. It's giving up the hope that the past could be any different. It is accepting what has happened so that the past doesn't hold you hostage. Doesn't mean you have to like what happened in the past. Doesn't mean that you don't have to hold people accountable for what happened in the past. But it does mean that we have to let go of that magical thinking that makes us think that the past could be any different. It's about accepting what has happened so that the past doesn't hold us hostage, that we're not always looking there instead of looking forward. So let me move on and say that we know that forgiveness is often the only way to heal. But I'm going to use some of the material that Debbie Thomas has published uh, now widely, which was so good, um, where she helped us understand that forgiveness is not several things. Because how many of you hear the word forgiveness and that you have to forgive and all of a sudden you're already getting mad because you're like, well, wait a minute, you don't know what's happened to me or you don't know about this collective harm. How many struggle with forgiveness if you really own it? Forgiveness is not several things, especially, I don't know, I'll do three, three to five different things it is not. Number one, forgiveness is not denial. Forgiveness is not pretending that an offense doesn't matter or that a wound doesn't hurt or that an incompetent, incapable president should remain in office while hundreds of thousands of citizens perish because he wouldn't or couldn't tell the truth and lead. Forgiveness is not denial. Forgiveness isn't acting as if things don't have to change or allowing ourselves to continue to be abused or mistreated. Forgiveness is like saying, I still feel that pain, but I am willing to let go of your involvement in my pain because I need to let go of your hold on me so I can grieve and mourn and heal. Forgiveness is an attitude of faith where we turn over to God the business of how the abuser is doing, right? That's no longer our concern, how the abuser is doing. We give that to God. Number two, forgiveness is not a detour or a shortcut. True forgiveness calls us first to mourn, to lament, to burn with zeal, and to hunger and thirst for justice. As theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned us, we must never allow forgiveness to degenerate into cheap grace. That is, we can't preach forgiveness without requiring repentance. We do require that people repent. Number three, forgiveness is not instantaneous. Forgiveness is a process. It is a messy, nonlinear, and often barbed process that can often leave us feeling healed up and free one minute and bleeding out of every pore the next. So forgiveness really is not kind of an escalator to holiness. We always kind of think of that. It's really not an escalator. It really is more like a spiral staircase. We circle and circle and circle again, trying to create distance between the pain we've suffered and the new life that we seek. So, if forgiveness isn't denial, or a detour, or even quick, what is it? What is Jesus asking of us? So I'm going to give you one more example of what forgiveness is not, because sometimes it is our writers who use the best language around it. And in her popular memoir, Traveling Mercies, Anne Lamott writes that withholding forgiveness is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. So we'll get up to that slide, and you can see where we are on 
Not forgiving, she writes, is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Have you ever heard of forgiveness in that way? Because think about it. If I'm consumed with my own pain, if I insist on weaponizing my well-deserved anger in every interaction I have with other people, then I am drinking spiritual poison, and the poison will kill me and my other relationships long before it does anything to my abusers. Sometimes that's what we call projection, is when people weaponize their anger and their righteous indignation about something else that happened, and it gets projected onto every other thing that they are involved in. It's like drinking spiritual poison, and that poison will kill us long before our abuser is held to account, which is why forgiveness is important. Because if we choose forgiveness, we release ourselves from the tyranny of bitterness so that we might participate in a redemptive future in God. Have you ever thought about it that way? That forgiveness is releasing ourselves from the tyranny of bitterness. Well, Father Richard Rohr also has a wonderful quote, because these passages come up a good once a year in our lectionary, in one of the several Gospels that we consider. And that's because forgiveness is so hard. And sometimes our writers and our theologians help us understand it in a way that we can begin to wrap our heads around it. Because forgiveness, you're not going to walk out of here today automatically knowing how to forgive. But hopefully we'll move the needle a little bit further. And we'll keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. That's the social ethic of forgiveness. Father Richard Rohr reminds us that we may not be able to choose what happens to us in life particularly in childhood, but we can choose how to act in response to that. Father Rohr teaches us that we can tell a lot about evil and forgiveness by what a person does with their suffering. Do they transmit it or do they transform it? You can tell a lot about a person by what they do with their suffering. Do they transmit it, project it onto others, stay there their whole lives, or do they transform it and become a source of light and hope for others? Well, another helpful metaphor, and this is from Nadia Bowles-Weber, is to think of another's mistreatment of us as a chain-link fence of evil and pain that binds us to our perpetrator. Some of you who've been around St. John's for a while, you've heard this metaphor before, but, but who has not heard this before? For whom is this a new metaphor, that, that um, another's harm of us is like a chain-link fence of evil and pain around us? Is that new online? Yeah, we've got those in the sanctuary raising their hands. Hopefully some of you online. Sometimes when we are spiritually linked to our abuser, to our enemy, it can make it hard to forgive. But retaliation or holding on to anger about the harm done to us doesn't actually combat evil. It feeds it. Because if we are not careful we can actually observe, absorb the worst of our enemy and at some level start to become them and do harm to others. This is why these kind of things are so important. If we are not careful, we can actually absorb the worst of our enemy and at some level start to become them and do harm to others. This is the exact point that was raised in our Wednesday night class, which is why This sermon was so important today, so thank you, Robin, and others who participated Wednesday night. This was the point that was raised, which is, how do we forgive someone who is responsible for so much harm? What do we do with that? 
and the class's collective theological thinking about how to forgive when the harm was so great helped lead us to where we are today. Because forgiveness, you may not know this, forgiveness is God's way of combating evil. Which leads me back, because I know this theology can get kind of thick and it can be hard to understand, it can be hard to follow. So this all leads me back to one of my favorite all-time videos about forgiveness by Reverend Nadia Bowles-Weber. Those of you who've been around St. John's for a while, you've seen this video. Others of you have pulled it up. You've shared it with your friends and family. If you are new to us, pull it up and share it because it is more applicable today than ever. There is a language alert in this, but I think it is more applicable today than ever. This video is right on the money right now. Listen carefully. I really believe that when someone else does us harm, we're connected to that mistreatment like a chain. Because forgiveness is nothing less than an act of fidelity to an evil combating campaign. So... It's not an act of niceness. It's not being a doormat. It really, to me, is more badass than that. Maybe retaliation or holding on to anger about the harm done to me doesn't actually combat evil. Maybe it feeds it. Because in the end, if we're not careful, we can actually absorb the worst of our enemy and on some level even start to become them. So what if forgiveness, rather than being like a pansy way of saying it's okay, is actually a way of wielding bolt cutters and snapping the chain that links us? Like it is saying, what you did was so not okay that I refuse to be connected to it anymore. Forgiveness is about being a freedom fighter. And free people are dangerous people. Free people aren't controlled by the past. Free people laugh more than others. Free people see beauty where others do not. Free people are not easily offended. Free people are unafraid to speak truth to stupid. Free people are not chained to resentments. That's worth fighting for. There really is a light that shines in the darkness and that the darkness cannot, will not, shall not overcome it. So let me, for those of you in the sanctuary and for those at home, emphasize again uh, some of these words so that they sink in. Take a note. Put them in your phone. Watch this later. Nadia Bowles-Weber helps take all of the dense theology we have about forgiveness and helps us understand in two minutes what it means. Forgiveness is nothing less than an act of fidelity to an evil-fighting campaign. It is not an act of niceness. It is not being a doormat. She said it is really more badass than that. Did you know that? Does it feel that way when you forgive, that you are being a superhero, that you are being a fighter, 
She said forgiveness is about being a freedom fighter and free people are dangerous people. What happens? And when instead of being mad all the time about this, we learn how to forgive, we learn how to organize, we learn how to make a difference so this doesn't keep happening to two-year-olds who become the most dangerous people in the world. What are we doing? She writes, free people aren't controlled by the past. Free people are unafraid to speak truth to stupid. Free people are unafraid to speak truth to Trump. Free people are not chained by resentment, and that is worth fighting for. Because as we end today's sermon, as she ended the video, and as we take you into a next level kind of faith where you're not chained to the past, but your future is free, there really is a light that shines in the darkness. We're in a dark place as a country right now, and we don't have to be because there is a light that shines in the darkness. And the darkness, all of this, cannot, will not, shall not, the darkness shall not overcome the light. And we are the light. And may each of you today go forth from here transformed so that you can make a difference during this pandemic and you can bring hope to a hurting world. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. All loving God, thank you for teaching us that even with tattered hearts, through faithful witness and radical love, even the worst evil in the world can be overcome by good. Help us, God, to follow the example of your son, Jesus, so that we might learn to transform, not transmit, the suffering of our human existence. Help us to surrender our pain and our anger to you, O Lord, so that we might be released to overcome evil with good, creating a new future for us all. In Jesus' name, amen.